It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. Where KSL offers Utah deeper insights on the news. Host Boyd Matheson divides rage from reason and elevates the conversation on issues crucial to our community. On KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Then President Bill Clinton signed welfare reform into law 25 years ago, if you can believe that. It was a very controversial idea at the time. Many people. Uh, thought it was uh, a little harsh and a little crazy to tie federal help to work requirements, especially for single moms. Uh, but 25 years later, uh, it's time to look at how are things going, what changed, how are things for single mothers in particular. And to help us break that down, Lois Collins uh, with the Deseret News National Team is going to join us. Uh, she covers policy and research that impact families, and she is a critical voice in this area in terms of policy and researchers uh, look to her and her voice uh, for some good perspective on this. She's got a great piece that we will post on Deseret.com talking about how single moms are doing 25 years after welfare reform. Lois, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Boyd. Thanks for the invite. Awesome. So so where are we? I, I know when this originally rolled out 25 years ago, uh, it was controversial. There was the, uh, the classic, we've been talking about this a lot today, the classic uh, sky is falling, uh, you know, children are going to be found frozen on the street and, and all of the, you know, doom and gloom things. Uh, what has happened? Where are we? Hi, Boyd. So I am going to date myself a little bit because I actually covered this when welfare reform was first proposed. That was one of the things that I wrote the most about. And you're right, there were terrible predictions about what was going to happen. And what has happened in the 25 years varies some, depending on who you ask, for a lot of reasons that I, that I can explain pretty simply. But bottom line is that welfare, in the case of single moms, which are the people who most are impacted by welfare, uh, the single moms and their families have done better. They're, they're living in better houses than they were. They have more opportunities than they were. And one thing that's missed in the discussion is the fact that they're still very poor. Um, this, is not, this is not a story where they have climbed completely out of poverty, but compared to where they were before welfare reform and the work requirements, they're doing fairly well. And that's, that's such an important distinction that uh, they, many of them are still in that uh, space of working poor, uh, but they are doing better. What are some of the things that we have learned or that we should have learned uh, over the last 25 years? So one of the most interesting things when, when you talk about the different views on how it's gone is that it depends on how you measure it. So if you measure it strictly by income, um, one of the, the most respected reports out right now is by a guy named Bruce Meyer, and he's from uh, he's like a national economist. He's from the University of Chicago and the National Bureau of Economic Research. And he says part of the problem is that when you ask people what their sources of income are, they tend to neglect things. They don't think about food stamps as being income. They don't think about maybe child care subsidy as being income. So they underreport their whole basket of tools. Mm-hmm. 
so what he measured was consumability. And I think one of the things that we've learned is that there are lots of ways to measure this, and we maybe need to look at the ways that, that they can be measured. Um, consumability means what you can afford to buy. And what they found is that, that over the 25 years, these families, these single mom families, are much more able to buy decent housing, not not great housing. We're not talking fancy housing, but they're less apt to have, you know, holes in the floors and cracks in their walls. They they are more apt to have some air conditioning in their apartment or to have um, safer environment, better neighborhoods than they were 25 years ago. And that's a consumer thing. They're more apt to be able to pay for gasoline so that they can get to work. They're more apt to have health insurance than they were, um, both from a combination of Medicaid and also from buying their own through work if it's mm -hmm. offered. So the things that you measure that way, they seem to be doing much better than they were 25 years ago before welfare reform. Yeah, so interesting. And, and much of that welfare reform you know, changed a lot of the traditional cash welfare uh, into block grant, into uh, different things in terms of some of those tax credits uh, or Right, subsidies. so it's child care support, it's the child tax credit, the earned income tax credit, which strictly goes to people who are working. And, and that was part of the concern was, what about people who can't work? There are people who can't work because their children have some sort of issue that they really need a parent at home, or it's going to be more expensive for society and for the family in both emotional and, and real financial terms, or people who have a medical condition that prevents them from working. And welfare reform did create some carve-outs for those people. Um, but overall, the, the theory was, and I think remains, that if you can get people tools so they can work, then maybe they can progress in the workplace, they can progress in education, and they can become stronger individually and as families and, and create a path where they can build. Yeah, so as we look back 25 years on this welfare reform, uh, from your perspective, Lois, where does that really put us today? And what are the things that we should be looking at or thinking about as we figure out how to be most helpful, not trap people in programs, but as you said, get on that path where they can uh, move upward and onward. So in more than 25 years of covering these topics, I think the thing that I think is the most missed in the conversation is how different families are. We tend to want to lump people into to one category. So they're all like this or they're all like that, and one solution will solve it or one solution will hurt it. And the bottom line is that the most effective social work, the most effective programs are the ones that allow flexibility to meet people where they are and help them individually progress, help meet their individual needs, as opposed to trying to paint everybody with the same brush. You can't do it. It's not accurate, and you're always going to leave people behind if you do that. Yeah, and that, I think that's so vital, and I think that does uh, speak to a little more of that local influence and control, state and local uh, being able to make more of that adaptation. Uh, again, this is not a monolithic group. There's a lot of variety well, in there. And that's what, the, that's what block grants really are. They pass through to your state and local governments for them to kind of shape the programs within parameters, but they also provide a little bit more flexibility to, fig to figure out what this person needs or that person needs. And so as long as we build into our safety net, and I do believe we need a safety net, we need to help people, but as long as we build into our safety net a way to recognize their individual challenges and strengths, 
we have a better chance of helping people make it to the next to the next level in terms of how well they're doing. Yeah, fantastic. Lois Collins with the Deseret News. Got a great piece on Deseret.com. Looking back 25 years at welfare reform, uh, so many important things to discuss, a lot of things to continue to tweak and improve as we look at how can we best help uh, those that are in need. Lois Collins, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. See ya. All right, when we come back, uh, how much does the defense industry contribute to Utah's economy? There's a new report from the Kempsey Gardner Institute. has some pretty eye-popping numbers, $19.3 billion. We'll take a deeper dive into those numbers coming up next. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.